0: You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, morning, everyone. So uh, my name is Steve, uh, and I get the chance to do this every once in a while. I think last time I was up here, I said I get the chance to do it like once every few months, but I was like, I was up here two weeks ago, so uh, so fun stuff. Uh, if you were like me this week, uh, you woke up every morning questioning whether you were sick or allergies. So, anybody else like that? So, if I go into a coughing fit, I apologize for that, but it's allergies. Spoiler alert. So, we're about halfway through uh, the Sermon on the Mount series, and, uh, which is really a unique and amazing part of Scripture, like we talked about in kind of the intro. It's, it's Jesus' longest, continuous discourse kind of from, from start to finish, Um, And through it, he gave really his simplified teachings on how our lives should look and how we should follow him. So last week, uh, we walked through a pretty large section of the Sermon on the Mount, and it was a series on Jesus's teaching that was really like a re-giving of the Old Testament law. Um, You know, but it was focused heavily on heart transformation. So in each of those sections, Jesus started with, you have heard it heard, you've heard it said, and he would quote, you know, either something from the actual law or a common teaching of the day. And then he said, but I say to you. So it was kind of like a a reinterpretation or a re-giving of the law. Uh, And Jesus' purpose in that was very clear. And as Matt kept saying last night in quote, I wrote it down because it's a good quote. I'm not sure if it was original to him or not, but uh, Jesus is after nothing less than the total renovation of our hearts. It was a pretty good quote. Um, So even with that focus on heart change, Jesus gave us some really clear examples of what a changed heart looks like and should lead us to some kind of action in pursuit of a changed heart. And none of these were about behavior modification, if you remember us talking about that last week. It's once again bringing us back to the original purpose of the law, which was to reveal our own sinfulness to ourselves, and then through repentance and grace and complete reliance on God, let us be changed by that. So as a reminder of what Jesus taught us, he told us not to just don't murder somebody. He said that's not all the law was about. Jesus said that it was a changed heart that doesn't harbor hate in the first place or reduce people to less than human by calling them inferior. He told us to not just don't commit adultery, it's much much more than that. Jesus says, have a heart that doesn't objectify people, reducing them to an object that you find attractive, which is again putting yourself and your desires above above their humanity. He said to have a heart that treats marriage as sacredly as God treats it. That doesn't just discard people when they're no longer useful or desirable to you. To honor that covenantal relationship the same way that God honors his covenantal relationship with us. And if you're not married, to honor other people's marriages as sacred. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. He said to have a heart that was so trustworthy uh, to others that you don't even need to swear by something. You don't need to swear by the temple or by God's name. Just say yes or no and be trustworthy enough to not require an oath beyond that. He said to have a heart that when you are wronged, be radically anti-egotistical, not as a doormat, but as people who show what injustice is by not just being the one who's wronged, but not being the wrongdoer. And lastly, he said, um, have a heart that doesn't just love people who love you back. He says even the Gentiles do that. But love those who hate you, because that's what God does. So being holy and set apart in all these things, as our Father is holy and set apart, he says be perfect as your father is perfect, and that idea of perfect is like the idea of coming to completion. Um, so I know we hear perfect and we kind of like cringe a little bit of like that means zero mistakes. What it, the, the image that's portraying is being complete, being fulfilled in something. So it's almost as if <clears throat> the last section that we just went through um, is asking us to lead kind of a lead us to a question of like, sounds good, but how do I get a changed heart? What is like what does that mean? You're saying all of this is it's about renovating our hearts it's about changing our hearts uh, but what does that look like and it's no coincidence that in the next section of jesus sermon it's on the regular rhythms of heart transforming spiritual practices and the correct posture to have while doing those practices What well, we're about to launch into are Jesus' teachings on three regular rhythms that he that he points out that should mark the lives of his followers it includes giving to the needy includes prayer <clears throat> which are the two that we're going to go over today and it goes over fasting which matt's going to get into next week And so this list is by no means inclusive to every spiritual practice, obviously, but it's worth noting that Jesus assumes that we're doing these things. He says that when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, and not doing them as a means of being justified uh, in front of God, but as a means of of practice of being transformed, of being sanctified, which is an ongoing and repetitive process. So with that, let's pray one more time, and then we'll get into uh, the word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for um, who you are, that your name is great and holy, and um, yeah, that you gave us this pattern uh, of prayer that we can that we can follow. You gave us the correct postures uh, to have when we're um, when we're practicing these regular rhythms that you that you give us, God. So we just pray for uh, clear heads this morning, clear hearts. and We just uh, thank you for this community, the people in this room, and just the ways that you've uniquely gifted us. We just ask that you. Um, Allow us to hear, hear from you this morning, Lord. In your name, amen. So before we jump into the scripture here, an interesting pattern to notice uh, in Jesus' teachings on these spiritual practices is that Jesus teaches us in really clear terms what these spiritual practices should look like by first starting by what they definitely shouldn't look like. Uh, he starts with what postures and motivations we shouldn't have and then follows it up with what we should have. So see if you can pick up that pattern as we as we read in. So, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So in terms of wrong motivation, again, he starts with kind of the wrong motivation, wrong posture. What does Jesus say it is? Just right off the bat. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So it's the idea of being, you know, even though you're doing something good, you're doing it with the completely wrong motivations. You're doing it in order to be seen. And then Jesus says those motivations are obviously way off. It's a motivation of scraping up as much self-recognition as you can rather than, rather than doing it for the sake of actually helping others. And Jesus actually uses some really funny words here to point out the people who are practicing it this way. He says he calls them hypocrites, which doesn't seem funny up front, I, gr- I grant you. But our modern definition of that word um, you know, kind, of, <clears throat> kind of steers us a little bit, uh, I think kind of gives us a, a, a bit of a, a wrong mentality on this. So our modern definition is what for hypocrite? It's like somebody who says one thing but does something else, right? That's kind of our our modern way of of doing it. But the word used here, upokritos, I know I butchered that as well, it's a Greek word. And it's literally the word for an actor, like somebody on stage performing. Uh, So it's kind of an interesting term. So when Jesus calls somebody a hypocrite, he's calling them an actor, like a stage actor. Kind of interesting thing. So to drive that point home, home a little bit more, you know, he calls the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites, which in our modern definition doesn't totally make sense because if anybody was doing what they said and saying what they do, it was the hypocrites. Or it was, sorry, it was the, it was the Pharisees. They were putting these heavy burdens on society of how much to tithe, but then they themselves would also tithe. You know, They were giving these kind of really difficult burdens that really only they could meet, but then they were also doing them. So, Jesus' word here is, is again, a little bit different. So, in Matthew 23, uh, 23 through 26, Jesus says this. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out the gnat and yet swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, actors,' For you clean the outside of your cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of your cup and your plate, that then the outside might also be clean. So in 23, Jesus is a lot more fiery than he is here in 6, but he's saying the same thing. He's saying, have the correct motivation for doing these things. Don't be a stage actor. And here's where Jesus' funny word picture comes through. He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, as the actors do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may, may be praised by others. Jesus is kind of standing to the side and saying, hey, everybody, get the popcorn, the show's about to start. Like as these guys are coming in to do, to do their giving, to do whatever they're, whatever they're doing. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of some funny words there that he's saying. He's calling them actors in that way. So he said, truly I say to you, they have received their reward, is the end of that. So when your motivation is about being seen, so that you may be praised by others, that's all the the reward you're going to get. That's what Jesus is saying here. That feeling, that little feeling of superiority you get, or that little bit of self credit you get, um, while kind of puffing yourself up, that's it. That's the reward. That's the end of it. But wh- what does Jesus say? The kingdom response is of giving to the needy. He says, "When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, what, so that your giving may be in secret." And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So Jesus uses that hyperbole here uh, of you know, not knowing what your hands are doing, or your hands not knowing what you're doing. Um, you know, just in terms of, of uh, you know being so genuine in your giving that you know nobody knows what you're doing, except like including your hands. It's sort of that hyperbole kind of thing. It's a totally upside down motivation uh, system that gives that takes you out of the equation regarding the motivation. And so when your father sees this, he will reward you. And I think when we hear reward, we think, you know, like jewels in the crown or kingdom in heaven kind of stuff. Or some huge future reward that we kind of obscure uh, reward. But I don't really think that's that's all that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you know, remember from the beginning, he's been talking about having a transformed heart in all of this. And so I think, you know, it's what he's saying is the more that you do this, the more you give to somebody without anyone else even knowing about it, the more you have a heart-changing experience, and that is your reward. So every time you give in secret without a shred of recognition from other people, you're actively dying to yourself, and you're killing that ego part of you that craves recognition. So sure, it's a future reward in some sense, in the fact that you're carrying that forward with you, um, but it's also very much here and now. I mean, it's sort of like analogous to the kingdom of heaven kind of thing, of like, you know, it's, it's future, but it's also now. You know, we're carrying that forward with us. So practicing righteousness in this way can feel like it's happening at a glacial, really slow pace, right? But this is the faithful life of a Jesus follower, step by step, denying your own ego, which is screaming for recognition, and instead doing generous acts in anonymity for the result of a changed heart. So that's the spiritual practice of giving. So Jesus now turns his focus to prayer, which we're actually going to spend most of our time in this morning, uh, and in the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6, 5 through 14, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, like the actors, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Again, it's that same kind of pattern. When you pray, do not heap, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So we'll stop here for a second. Jesus once again starts with that negative example um, of what definitely prayer should not look like before moving us into the, kind of that positive case. And the first case is basically the same example that he did with, with giving to the needy. It was people who were just doing it for the sake of being recognized, doing it for the sake of being seen by others. Speaking to, the, speaking to God for the sake of appearing more righteous before everyone else, and they got their reward. The second example, though, is, is different. It's, it's kind of unique, and it's in uh, verse 7 there. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. So Jesus gives us kind of another pitfall of prayer here, and it's this. He says, do not have a distorted view of who God is. And it might not seem like the immediate link there, but let me explain. He's talking about the gods of the Gentiles. When you pray, don't pray like the Gentiles who just kind of drone on and on and on. Well, the god of the Gentiles in Jesus' day were the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods. Um, and when you prayed to them, you weren't even sure if they could hear you. You weren't even sure if they liked you. You know, there was a lot of this, this kind of thing of like trying to convince the, the gods, lowercase g, to give you what you wanted. I mean, just reading like Iliad and the Odyssey um, as an example. I did the, the Cliff Notes version, obviously. I didn't read the whole thing in prep of this. But. Uh, the first four books of the Odyssey are all about the hero, the guy, Odysseus, pleading to the goddess Athena to appeal to her father, Zeus, to allow him to go home. He just wants to go home. <laughs> and that he's doing this because the gods are angry at him or whatever it was. And the whole first four books of this of this book, are all about, like, it's essentially this prayer to Athena to help me get home or whatever. And Jesus is saying, quite simply and directly, God is not like that. You know, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need even before you ask him. He's saying God is holy and set apart in that he's not like the gods that you think, that you think of in this culture. You don't have to, you can speak to God as a father because he knows what you need before you even ask him, and that um, he wants to give us good gifts, and we're going to learn that later in, in Matthew 7. Jesus talks about that. And kind of a side note, what I think is funny about this is like, you know, God already knows, and so we kind of think in our in our logic, you know, Western society brains, well, if God already knows, what's the point? Like, why should I, you know, why should I even pray? If God already knows. It's just interesting to note that Jesus actually draws the exact opposite clu- uh, conclusion. He says, God already knows, so pray. <laughs> it's just an interesting thing to, to, to meditate on of like, you know, and he's not saying drone on and on and on. It's not a, it's not a heavy burden to pray. Um, I mean, as we'll read here in a second, Lord's Prayer takes about, what, 20 seconds? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's that heart uh, posture that we're, that we're gonna get into here. So the two pitfalls again, <clears throat> he says, so when we pray, don't have the wrong motivation for praying, self-recognition like the actors do. And then the second pitfall, he says, don't have a distorted view of who God is. He loves you and wants to give you good gifts. And the idea of rewards is the same as before. If you have these wrong motiva- motivations, you've received your reward in full just by getting that little bit of petty recognition that you wanted. But the long-lasting reward of a person who prays in private is a slowly transformed and renewed heart. Again, that glacial pace, but it's, that's how the Spirit works. So now we switch to Jesus' model of prayer, which is, again, the Lord's Prayer. We're going to get into this. So Matthew 6, 9 through 13. He says, when we pray... Uh, sorry." pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, and we as we has, have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from e- evil. <clears throat> Did anyone else grow up or even today regularly say this prayer at meals and stuff? I see a couple of hands. Yeah. Yeah, for me this is like my, my grandfather's house he's kind of this uh, old reformed uh, theology guy and every every meal I hear him mean, even the cadence I even hear it in, in when as I'm saying it I picked up you know from my grandfather every time I read it I kind of hear his voice in the back of my mind so it's really beautiful but also to some degree the familiarity with the words of the prayer kind of can block out the words themselves to some extent I mean we'd, we're so familiar with it that sometimes we uh, that we kind of miss it um, and <clears throat> we got to be careful here because what the Lord's prayer is is actually really amazing. We're going to dive into here. So Jesus cared not just about that his disciples prayed in the first place, but how they prayed. So and interestingly here, we see Jesus's model for prayer. We see some of the things that Jesus cared really deeply about, and even in his own brief summary, what he says all of scripture is about. So maybe that sounds a little too grandiose, but let's get into it here. So when you look at this prayer, you can see two clear halves of the prayer. Just look at the subjects in the prayer. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Then it switches. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can kind of see it just right there. First half, your, your, your. Second half, us, our, us, our. And so what we see in this prayer is a model uh, that Jesus gives us for our priorities and focuses. First, we have an orientation towards God, that his name be holy, that his kingdom come, that, he, that his will be done. And But so many of our prayers start, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I feel some guilt in this myself. Our prayers start, continue, and finish And they don't really leave like the six inches of air around our own heads. I mean, we're like, we're so focused on ourselves. We're asking about what can God do for me? What do I need? Those kind of things. But then secondly, even in the model of this prayer, the orientation kind of swings around as we saw in the second half. But does he say me or I? No, he says we and our. And it's this communal focus and not an individualistic one. It's pretty interesting, and I think it's an important distinction because what he prays, or what he teaches us to pray, rings completely differently when you have a communal focus rather than an individualistic one. So we can read these two halves of the prayer. If you zoom out and look at what this prayer is as a whole, what Jesus is saying is love God and love others. It's really interesting. So this is Jesus' summation of, all, of the greatest commandment. Also, this is Jesus' theology. When we hear theology, we think complex. But Jesus' theology is simple and profound. He summarizes it very clearly here. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. It says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? What's your theology? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, and with your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. It's really beautiful. Jesus summarizes all of scripture into this this very simple condensed message. Love God and love your neighbor. So This is a simplified message that Jesus repeats throughout his ministry as a way of humanizing divine instructions. So how you treat... God is emphasized and highlighted by how you treat your neighbor. Sometimes we forget that, and Jesus is here to remind us um, that we can say that we love God all we want, but if the fruit of your life is a trail of unreconciled or damaged relationships, are you really loving God well? Just like the law itself was a mirror to so, show us our own sinfulness, sometimes other people are a mirror to show that, us, show that to us as well. So the Lord's Prayer is really a distilled work that Jesus crafts for us to center our hearts during a prayer, taking, off, taking the focus off of ourselves as individuals and placing it on God and then secondarily on our neighbors. Another thing to recognize here is that Jesus is giving a model for prayer that actually would have been familiar to his audience in the first century. Prayer, especially corporate structured prayer, was a huge part of daily life. I mean, they were going to the, they were going to the temple you know, multiple times a day to do these structured prayers. And there was a prayer actually at the time called the Kaddish that, uh, that predicates Jesus by about 100 years. And um, by the time Jesus is on the scene, it's part of that kind of three times a day pattern uh, that, that you would go through um, when you go to the temple. And today the Kaddish is still recited, but it's actually grown and grown and grown. So now it's like not really practical or feasible to read it three times a day because it's gotten like pages long. Uh, but at the time... It was very condensed in short version, and this is, uh, this is the, I'll read the Kadesh here, which like I said, existed on the, on the scene at the time of Jesus. See if you can see some similarities here. It says, may his great name be exalted and hallowed in a world which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the house of Israel speedily and soon. It's kind of interesting, right? My purpose in reading this is not to scandalize you in any way, so stay with me, because it's really beautiful what Jesus is actually doing here. We'll take a look at the differences between these two prayers in a second, but just on that first reading, uh, what, do you, what do you pick up? Which, which half of the Lord's Prayer does that kind of st- stick with, the first or the second? First, yeah. So he says, you know, he talks about God's name being great and hallowed, being holy. He talks about God's will being done. He talks about God's kingdom coming. So it's these, it's these same patterns. And so, like I said, we'll look at the differences in the second, but you know, that, that lines up with the, with the first half. And Jesus is happy to step into the existing practice of honoring God and giving him due glory, uh, but then he adds the second piece. It's almost as if he's saying, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbors. I'm going to take something that's familiar and existing to you, and I'm going to tack on at the end, okay, now also love your neighbors. I think it's actually really beautiful, actually, that he uses this familiar prayer for a couple of reasons. That was, you know, that was one. Um, but, you know, one, the other might be that, you know, people were waiting with bated breath as Jesus is on the, on the, you know, in his sermon uh, teaching. People might be waiting with bated breath, like, okay, tell us the secret to this new life, you know. Um, what combination of words are you going to teach us to kind of unlock all the secrets of this new life? And Jesus, is, in some sense, is saying, you already know how to pray. <laughs> you know, this, is, this, is, this should be familiar to you. Another beautiful thing is that this is in line with everything else that Jesus does in his ministry. I mean, for example, did Jesus come to abolish or rewrite the law? No, he came to fulfill it. So in the same way, Jesus didn't come to undo or rewrite the practice of prayer. He came to redeem it and fulfill it. So it's in line with with what Jesus is already doing. And then the last thing I'll mention about the beauty of using an existing prayer is that now it kind of gives us a foundation of, you know, identifying the differences between the Lord's Prayer and the Kadesh. It provides some, some contrast, I think, for meditation for all of us. And that familiarity is broken up a little bit <clears throat> with how Jesus, um, you know, shows the differences, how these differences are fulfilled in his prayer. So the first one is actually just right there in the first line. He says, uh, you know, the literally the first words of the prayer in the name our father so the name of god the name of god yahweh is this beautiful old testament word that comes from god's interaction with moses at the burning bush you know it's i am you know moses goes back and he says who should i tell who should i tell the people that you know who sent me and god says i am sent you so it brings with it a ton of meaning and beauty beauty and out of an enormous amount of respect for the name of God, actually that name, Yahweh, was actually almost never used or spoken out loud, just out of respect. So even in the Kadesh prayer, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but they didn't actually use the name of God in that prayer. It says, may his name be great. In the world that he created, may he establish his kingdom. So it's carefully crafted here not to use the name of God just out of respect. And that's for good reason. I mean, from Deuteronomy, um, you know, the, just from the, the law itself, Ten Commandments, um, you shall, or I'm sorry, from Exodus, <clears throat> you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So these people, you know, they're, they're trying to honor this command. You know, they're saying, well, we don't want to use the Lord's name in vain, so we're just actually not going to say the name, of, the name of God. But what did Jesus do in this prayer? He starts off by calling God our Father. Jesus, Jesus didn't invent calling God his Father, but he did popularize it. So it's not common to refer to, God, to refer to God as Father in Jesus' day. Um, and, but today it's so commonplace that we sort of miss that a bit. You know, it's not scandalous for us to start a prayer with our Father. But in Jesus' day it actually was. Uh, so a couple of examples, actually. There's only like three or four examples in all of the Old Testament where we refer to God as our Father. So two of them that I, that I pulled out here, one was Deuteronomy 14. It says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. For you are a people holy to the lord your god and the lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth that one's really subtle it just calls us his sons isaiah 64 8 is another example it says but now O lord you are our father we are the clay and you are the potter and we are all we are all the work of your hands so just to de- demonstrate how divisive this was. So Jesus is calling God his father, which is a, which is a biblical stance to take. Uh, but it was pretty divisive in his day to call God father. So John 5, 18, uh, just to, to kind of demonstrate how divisive this was to you. He says, this is why they were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God in their mind. So why would Jesus kind of invite this divisiveness into the prayer? I mean, it's kind of there as a almost fighting words, you know. Why would Jesus invite this into the prayer? And I think it's when you read the whole line. So, hallowed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Set apart be your name. So Jesus is saying, don't just honor God's name by omitting it. Don't just honor God's name by not saying it. Honor God's name with showing what it means that God is actually holy, that God is set apart, that God is different. So it goes back to that, that idea of you know, not just droning on with many words uh, as the Gentiles do, because God you know, the, you know, uh, conceptually they think, oh, God can't hear me unless I speak a lot. No, he's saying God is different. God is, our God is different. Our God is holy. Our God is set apart. So it's divisive, but it's all about changing our hearts. And then the rest of the prayer. <laughs> we'll read it again here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. So just like the first half of the prayer, the second half of the prayer actually is inviting us to take the focus off of ourselves. Certainly when we pray for ourselves, you know, I or me individually is, is included in us. But, you know, the point here is that you're putting your focus on the larger good of our neighbors, the larger good of our communities, to love our neighbors. And he's doing this because this is how God's kingdom is brought forth, according to Jesus. Again, Jesus saw the way in which we treat other people to be inseparable from the way that we treat God. He's doing this because, um, you know, and that first, that first phrase of the second half of the prayer, love, the love your neighbor half, Jesus tells us to pray for daily bread. So in our part of the world, you know, praying for daily bread might not seem like a grave concern, Uh, trying to be careful here, but, you know, I think most of us, you know, kind of know where our next couple of meals are coming from generally, right? And yet Jesus still invites us to pray for bread. It's kind of interesting because, you know, when you shift that focus to the communal, you start finding yourself thinking about us collectively, you know, beyond the walls of your own house, beyond the walls of your own, you know, kind of family unit there, and when you do that situations start popping up all over the place where we actually don't have enough bread. You think about that and you know actually when you start praying this more and more as you're out and about, you know if you do a regular practice of this, you'll find yourself praying, you know, give us thinking about everyone, thinking about our neighbors and everyone, give us our daily bread and then you'll see actually, you know what? I might have enough bread but that person doesn't. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. Likewise with forgiveness. You know, Jesus is telling us Again, that the way we love God is inseparable from the way that we love our neighbors. And so asking God to forgive us as we have also forgiven makes us forgiving others pretty darn important. So I think we often read this this line as, you know, forgive us our debts, and we just kind of leave it there. We don't kind of tack on that second part of it, because obviously we all need forgiveness. Uh, But kind of flipping that and saying, forgive us as we forgive others, it kind of flips the script and again turns it outward. So we're not just consumers of grace; we're also agents of it. And frankly, I think if you know if you pray this way, uh, it's meant to drive us to forgive others. And if you don't think that's the case, then I mean, Jesus makes it abundantly clear in Matthew six here, just after this section, Matthew six fourteen and fifteen, <clears throat> immediately following the Lord's prayer, he says, and it's it's the one that kind of ma- makes you makes you cringe sometimes is. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will the Father forgive you yours. That sounds harsh, right? But it's exactly what's in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. You know, love God, love your neighbor. It's that same, that same Jesus theology keeps giving us. So the Lord's Prayer is just this kind of perfectly structured pra- prayer that accomplishes so many things. It takes the focus off of us and puts it onto God as a starting place. It puts God in the right position in our hearts. It reminds us uh, to recognize God's name as hallowed and holy, and not just to not say God's name, but like let's let's make his name set apart, because it is. And it reminds us that even though I might not be hungry, others, we, might be hungry. And it teaches us that the way we love God is only demonstrated through how we love our neighbors, including in forgiveness. So in closing if Jesus is really after the total renovation of our hearts and he is let's press into that and com- uh, that completed and perfect example that we have in him you know we can love our enemies as he teaches us we can give our resources to the needy we can pray we can fast and then the reward is just the reward it's just it's it's not the focus of it of course Let's receive our reward of a new heart, a transformed heart, by actively dying to self in these things. You know, each of these things are kind of small glacial movements that just take that focus off of ourselves. And so let's do that by not seeking recognition. And in prayer, let's love God by loving our neighbors well. So again, love God, love your neighbors. So with that, we'll close. We'll invite the band back up, and we're going to sing, and we're going to pray, and we're going to give, and we're going to receive. And uh, I'll pray us out here just again by praying uh, the Lord's Prayer as this model. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.